Welcome once again. This is On Mike with Jordan Rich. I had the chance to grab a quick conversation with Martin Dugard, the number one New York Times bestselling co-author of The Killing Series with Bill O'Reilly. And his latest book is called Taking Paris, story of the Allied liberation of Paris from the grip of the Nazis during World War II. History is a passion of mine, particularly the World War II era. So we got right into it, and I certainly hope you enjoy it. Let's go on mic now with Martin Dugard. The first thing I, I am really impressed with is how much I learned about Charles de Gaulle. He really is a central figure. Uh, it seems to me that everything revolves around him when you're talking about France. Why Charles de Gaulle, in this case, uh, as the center of the story? Uh, you know, quite honestly, when I began writing the book, I just only knew of de Gaulle. I just didn't, uh, I didn't kind of know the man. But then as I, you know, as I, as I began looking into it, as the, you know, when the Germans invade uh, France in May 10th, 1940. De Gaulle is one of the few French commanders who actively fights back. You know, he he, he was this kind of visionary um, proponent of armored combat, and he put those theories into use. And he was actually a little bit effective at kind of stopping the, the German advance. And that, you know, ultimately, mm. you know, he had to he had to flee himself. But what I loved about De Gaulle was I think he was a little bit crazy because <laughs> you know you got this really tall, individual, he's like six two, six three. He's got a small head and a big nose and he's got wide hips and he chain smokes gitans but he believed that after the french government fell and after he fled to to england he believed he was uh, a man of destiny he believed that the future of france rested in his hands and he was tempestuous and quarrelsome and uh, very haughty but at the same time he had such a, a sense of patriotism mm. that nothing could stop him from in his determination to get Churchill on his side and to get people back in, get the Allies in, back into France to rescue the city of Paris. Well, he's one of many haughty individuals, from FDR to Churchill to Patton to Eisenhower. <laughs> They're all on the cover of the book. I love the the track that this book takes, because you not only talk about the good guys, but you talk about the Vichy government. And the fact that FDR was not favorable to de Gaulle for much of this period. You know, that was a surprise to me. I mean, that's, and that's one of the, the joys of researching and writing a book is because you you take the the things that you knew previously you know kind of on the on the surface and then and then you dig down into it and i always thought roosevelt was a big fan of de gaulle it turns mm-hmm. out he was not in the slightest and he was at odds with churchill about that and he actually tried to subvert de gaulle's attempts to to lead the french people ultimately he came around but it was it was it was kind of a political end game for roosevelt but i love to to learn how his mind worked, how he was able to kind of dig into um, the whole uh, dynamic between Churchill and de Gaulle and, and the French people and, and, and make his decisions in a way that was going to ultimately benefit him in America the most. Yeah, you really understand a lot more about how the power structure was, was moving even before the United States gets into the war in 1940. Churchill is stymied, although he has the great Dunkirk uh, victory and his role in this is fascinating because he puts de Gaulle up in London for a while. Talk a little bit about Churchill's uh, importance or lack thereof in some cases in in this movement. You know, I I think when I you know, when I when I began to write Taking Paris, my whole idea was I wanted to write something that had an epic sweep and it had a lot of really interesting characters, and I wanted to write it like a page turner, you know, present tense, kind of like a Jason Bourne thriller where people just keep turning the pages. Mm. But I needed one character to be the the glue, the, the the person that kind of 
propped up this narrative thread. And that person was Churchill because he's there at the very start. He, you know, he he takes De Gaulle in and he he supports. He puts him on the BBC. He, he supports mm. the whole thing. He works with Roosevelt to to affect the the invasion of France and the ultimate liberation of Paris. And to me, and I, I don't want to give it away for the reader, but it, to me, as you watch this, you watch uh, Churchill not willingly but inevitably giving away power and the sense of empire to to he doesn't he doesn't do it magnanimously but in, in the end he does what's best for the world instead of what's best for Winston Churchill and I find that uh, extraordinary yeah I, to me he's he's the the true unsung hero even though he would sing his own praises because he's Winston Churchill but he talks about <laughs> he talks about having to balance uh, with his own military and and with Patton and all the forces and sometimes he has to take a back seat and uh, a fascinating character you talk a lot about Erwin Rommel who of course is the desert fox and what really struck me was the fact that uh, his brutality I mean he's usually given status as a military genius and we hear about him being you know the anti-hitler but man he was a pretty rough customer wasn't he he was and and I don't want to you know because he's often viewed by uh, well, revisionist history is kind of changing it, but you know, a lot of people view him as the good German general. You know, he was the the good Nazi. And um, as I researched, I was a little bit taken aback because he mm. he was a he was a climber. You know, from a military point of view, he was trying to you know climb the military rung and get to the highest level. And he curried favor with Hitler. He was he worked closely with Hitler, and uh, and on the battlefield, like at, at Bur Hakim, which which is you know from reading the book, is it's like the yes. French Alamo. And his whole idea is we're just going to go in and we're going to kill all of you. And it wasn't like we're going to take prisoners. No, sir, we're going to kill everybody. And it was a little bit extraordinary to hear not just how brutal he could be, but also the how his health inevitably, inevitably suffered because of all that time in the desert. I, I had no idea that he he was in such a, a bad way physically by the end of the war. We're talking with Martin Dugard, uh, author of his latest Taking Paris, the Epic Battle, for the City of Lights. We only have him for a few moments, so I want to get as much as I can from the interview. Um, I want to talk with you about the enigma of France during that period, because you have France turning itself over to the Nazis with the Vichy government, a cooperative event. And you also have, when you hear the word resistance, you put French in front of it, and that's what everybody knows. You outlined some of the great resistance fighters and some of the spies, one of whom has to be a, a favorite of yours, I'm guessing, Virginia, the lady with the wooden leg. Let's talk about <laughs> she, yeah, she is a favorite. You, you caught that. Um, I mean, as a writer, when you when you stumble upon a character like that, you, you you work that because it's gold. Her story is so great. So she she was an American woman. She was from Baltimore. She was trying to get work in the diplomatic ranks, but she accidentally shot her leg off in a hunting accident. Mm. And it, you know, she was just as a woman, she was never gonna she was never gonna get a job at that time in diplomacy. So she has a wooden leg. She's she goes to the British and she offers her services as a spy. She's a fluent French speaker, and they take her up on it. They train her. They put her into into France. And she ends up running one of the most successful spy networks in within France. You know, in within the Vichy part of France. And then uh, I don't want to give away for the reader, but then she comes back just before D-Day, um, completely changes her appearance and her yeah. everything about her her reflection. She was one of the main reasons that U.S. troops and British troops 
uh, were able to effectively navigate the German defenses after D-Day. Yeah, there's so many of these characters, uh, real people who did extraordinary things. The name escapes me, but there's a, a gentleman who uh, had his throat cut at one point, had a major scar on his neck, and uh, he was ultimately caught and tortured. And the torture is just horrendous. I mean, we talk about the Taliban today, and uh, they certainly learned a lot from the Nazis. <laughs> Their comparisons are very good. That, that guy you're talking about is um, Jean Moulin. That's that's the one. He's yeah. a, a hero. You know, it's, he's a, you talk about the resistance. They, um, they were normal people. They, they were not people who were trained by the military. They didn't have weapons, largely. They, it was all, you know, housewives and, and, and teachers and just regular people who just decided to rise up against the Nazis. And um, and they were very effective, but, you know, most of them, like Jean Moulin, were, were tortured and killed once they were once they were handed over. And I have to say, I was in the city of Metz in eastern France a long time ago, and at the train station, that's where Moulin ultimately meets his fate. There's a plaque in his honor, and I remember walking past that plaque at the time and reading it, and it was in French and in English, and thinking to myself, that's a really good story. I'd like to know more about that guy. And so, you know, all these years later, when I turned out to do the book, I realized, oh, that's that guy. I'm finally getting to learn uh, about him. And interesting. I, I just, I love, I'm a history geek, so stuff like that, yeah. really. I love to fill in the knowledge. Oh, we, we know you're a history nut. We know that from your success <laughs> with, uh, with Bill O'Reilly. A few more things. Uh, the race to Paris, there's always that discussion about strategy. Do we take Rome first? Do, where do we enter? Do we go through North Africa, Italy, etc.? Cover a lot of that debate and a lot of that strategy in the book. It's always interesting to look back at D-Day and say, well, that was a momentous event. Could have gone a different way. Could have. And, and the, what, the strategy that we, first of all, the U.S. Army at the start of the, when we entered the war was was just a shell of what it would become. It was the 17th ranked army in the world behind mm-hmm. Romania. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't much of an army. So as we as we drafted more men, as we as we built more material, as we got more troops, we still didn't have the wherewithal and the ability to do a direct invasion of France. So that the strategy we followed of you know landing at Casablanca, fighting your way across North Africa, then you go into to Sicily and then into Italy, that soft underbelly theory that, that Churchill talked about. That was really all we could do at the time. We and so everybody talks about D Day. We all know about D Day, but the the path to D Day was basically learning how to fight in areas where there was less resistance until we had the ability to you know, do that massive invasion of France. Yeah, and the desert was Rommel's domain until things started to turn the other way, and his legend status sort of ebbed a bit, didn't it? What was it that turned the desert campaign around for the Allies? Two things. First of all, uh, Hitler was foolish enough to invade Russia, and so it's such a massive uh, allocation of men and material to, to do that. So the tanks that Rommel needed, the men he needed, the gasoline he needed to fuel those tanks, a lot of that was going to Russia. So he was he was always kind of short of fuel in, in, in arms. But uh, also, too, the Enigma code that the, 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 the British broke, but once the British broke the Germans' top-secret code, and they, like, when you look at El Alamein, which is, which is General Bernard Laws Montgomery's big moment, um, yes, it was a great set-piece battle, but at the same time, he knew exactly what Rommel was going to do because he'd broken the British code. So he was able to uh, prepare his defenses in a way so that when Rommel tried to sweep around and, and, and go through the British forces, Montgomery had people 
just to obliterate the German army and yeah. put them on the run. There, there's the importance of intelligence and the great work done by civilians as well as military. I have one more uh, story I'd like you to share, and this blew me away, and I'm sure it blew you away. You've written a lot about General Patton. We all know Greece, the treads of our tanks with their guts and all that <laughs> great stuff. But there's a scene uh, when Patton was close to being demoted and sent back to the U.S. and taken out of the battle. You have to have had your mouth drop when you discovered this connection between Patton and Eisenhower in Eisenhower's office. What happened, and how is that possible? <laughs> you know what I'm talking just, about. I'll tell you what. Yeah, I do. That blew me away because we all think of Patton as being this blood and guts guy, but Patton had a very um, passionate, romantic side to him, uh, and, and very sensitive side to him. And when he thinks he's being sent home, um, and he's in Eisenhower's office, and he, he literally thinks he's going to be sent home. And Marshall's General George Marshall, who was, you know, the the head over all armies, U.S. armies, wants him sent home. But Eisenhower decides to take a stand for Patton, an old friend of his, um, and Patton's standing at tension, and he starts crying and just literally just sobbing. And and the thing about this is, if you read Patton's recollections of the war, he does not tell the story that way. But both Eisenhower and, and Eisenhower's uh, top aide, uh, Beetle Smith tell that story about how Patton was just was just sobbing like a child and, and, and Eisenhower was sitting sitting on a couch watching you smoking a cigarette watching him and he can't stop laughing. It's just he's George laughing Patton. Patton. This, this, this guy just he's he's cracking up. So well, that's a great story. That, you I, know, again, that's gold. There's so many nuggets like that and I'm a World War II freak for for information and I really enjoyed the storyline, even though I knew the ending. It doesn't matter. You can still read it and get uh, a lot more. You'll learn about all of these characters and the maneuvers that were being made. What's your next project, Martin? I'm doing a sequel to Taking Paris. Um, it, it, it's also World War II. Um, I, I, can't, I don't want to give the topic out, but it's going to be... It's, another taking book I've, I've just decided I, I did the killing series it, it kind of ran its course and and now we're i'm kind of hoping to do a, a taking series and that's we'll great with world war ii for another one that hopefully just jump around yeah pick a verb and and create series from there <laughs> it's really nice to meet you and i know we we had limited time but i really appreciate it the book is called taking paris the epic battle for the city of lights martin dugard thank you so much and keep up the great work martin yeah, thanks very much. It's a great, great being on the show. I appreciate that. Thanks to all of you for subscribing and downloading the podcast. We really appreciate it. So many terrific topics and guests coming up. You can find out more about me, the book that I wrote, On Air, My 50-Year Love Affair with Radio, and much more at jordanrich.com. Thanks as well to Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media and to everybody at Chart Productions in Boston where this program is produced. Till next time, be well so you can do good. Take care.